0: I'm going to have the prayer of illumination after I have read my text. You know this text. You can probably quote it with me if I was using your translation. But listen carefully to it and think about what it's saying about you. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou hast anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Our Father, open our hearts, open our ears so that we can hear and believe and obey that we can live for you and give glory unto you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. You know the 23rd Psalm is probably the most used portion of scripture in this country for funerals. More than any other passage. And I'm not just talking about Christian funerals. <laughs> there if there's a passage that somebody wants for their loved one that's just died, They come to the 23rd Psalm. Why is that? Well, the Psalm has always stood as a a symbol of giving comfort for those who are in distress and encouragement. It's like a prayer, though, that comes from the foxhole when somebody is shooting at you. And you say, Lord, just get me out of this, and I will dot, dot, dot. Um, I may sound a little bit cynical at this, but many people turn to this Psalm like it's a promise that they can claim when they're in trouble and they they turn to God earnestly. And yet then when that trouble passes, they don't give God another thought until the next time. And sometimes there have been times when I've wanted to refuse to give them that comfort because they can't deal with God that way. And I don't want to give a false comfort. And in those occasions, I've gone into great explanation as to why they might be able to take comfort in it. So we get the gospel through anyways. But there are implications in this psalm that are very useful to us. And I have about seven of them. If you're taking notes, I I think there's seven points. Yes, seven points. The first one is to realize that this is the psalm of thanksgiving. He expresses a a confidence in his statements of fact that's based upon the word of God, based upon what God has told him and shown him in his living experience, David as the psalmist. Uh, It may well be that he wrote this at a time when there was a relative peace in his kingdom. But what we see here, though, is a gratitude that he's expressing um, for God's provision that actually then excites one to a greater earnestness in their relationship with God. You think about it, if you're, if you're making this statement, uh, well, and what follows it, I shall not want, he's basically saying, God has given me everything that I need. And it's almost like I need to praise him more, I need to depend upon him more. The second thing we see here is that he uses the term Yahweh, Lord, as you see it there. It's the personal name of God that he's using, the covenant name of God, the name of God because he's in a relationship with God. You see, and that adds to the confidence that he has because it's not just some God that he's talking about, but it's the God that has redeemed him, that's the God that's brought him out and set him apart And set us apart. That's the one that is your shepherd. It'd be something that ideally is the way it should be when a woman marries and takes on her husband's name. In part, she's doing that, making that statement that this man now is going to care for my every need. I'm taking on his name because I'm under his protection. Now, I know that may be out of sync with political correctness. But this, this is the sense, as we call upon God, in the, the covenant God, and, and as Jesus taught us, we call upon him as Father. You see, it is in, implying here a relationship that we have that is unique and one that is all-encompassing for us. We have this close personal relationship with God. We share the life of God in Christ. The third thing he says about him, he says he is my shepherd. And the implication here for us, that if you call God your shepherd, that means that you're listening to him and you're in submission to him. Think about that. He's a shepherd only to those who have a sense of their inadequacy, their weakness, their poverty, and they feel their need of his protection, his provision, and they have a willingness to live in his government under his sovereign rule, if you will, to live in God's sheepfold, you know, sometimes we hit a certain age in our development. Teens, maybe early 20s. And we can, we maybe can rebel a little bit. But what we're saying is that we're willing to live with God ruling over our lives. You remember, I mentioned to you John 10. In verse 4, Jesus says, The sheep follow him because they know his voice. John, in verse 27, my sheep know my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You see, to call God your shepherd is to say, I have surrendered to his will. I've surrendered to his care and what he gives me. He's the shepherd, not me. I hear what he wants. And then do it. Jesus uh, gives an analogy at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. You might remember where he talks about those who hear me and do my will are like the man who built his house upon the rock. And when the storms came and the winds blew and the storm waters, that house stood But the one who hears my word and doesn't do it, and I'm paraphrasing this, is like a man who builds his house upon the sand, and when the storms of life come, they're washed away. Now, he's our shepherd. We submit to him. Now, with those three things said, hear the conclusion, the fourth implication, I shall not want. With all that he said, with a sense of thanksgiving, a a sense of relationship and submission, he's saying, I'm content with what God has given me, where he's brought me right now. Does it mean that I get everything I want? Absolutely not. This might not be good for us, And particularly in our, I would say, our innocence, our youth, if you want to call it innocence, our naivety, we may want things that look really nice and shiny and bright and good, and they're not. No. But what we are is content with what he gives us and where he brings us. A great book for your study, and some of you have probably studied this, is uh, Jeremiah Burroughs' the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Well, he really lays out what our contentment in the Lord should look like. It's very convicting, but helpful. We're content in what he gives us, where he takes us, where he places us. David expresses this differently in uh, Psalm 16. Verses 5 and 6, he says, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Thou dost support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. What do you want in life? David says the Lord is that portion that he wants And it's beautiful. Why? Why? When we don't have everything, we may suffer disease, we may suffer a lot of things because our portion is him. It's being in him. Our happiness consists in the fact that his hand is stretched over us to govern us, to provide for us, to guide us and protect us. David's not afraid of anything lacking anything because God is his shepherd. Now, he was the king, but see, this should be true for us because we can see even more than David did. We see the expression of God's love beyond what he heard about Moses. We see it at Calvary in him sending his son to make us his children. Matthew Henry has interesting comments at this point. He says... I shall be supplied with everything that I need. And if I don't have everything that I desire, I may conclude it is either not fit for me or not good for me, or I shall have it in due time. Now, that's a really good answer for your children Mm -hmm. or others. They say, I want this. Well, let's wait. You know, it may not be good for you. It may not be good enough for you. Or just wait. As you look at verses 2 and 3, we see a further description of this provision of God. He makes me lie down in green pastures to a sheep. Not only do they have enough to eat, but they can actually, you know, in a green pasture, it's not too bad. It's not too uncomfortable. They can lie down in that green pasture where they've got food and they've got safety. He leads me beside quiet water. Sheep are foolish animals and they get spooked easily. They get spooked by water that's flowing very rapidly. But a pool, a gently flowing stream, that doesn't scare them usually. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. There is this restoration, this help, this provision. The Lord gives us what we need and he maintains us. But notice that it's not just the physical and the emotional, but it is actually life which God gives us. It's an eternal life. Jesus also says in John chapter 10, I came. Now, this is the good shepherd speaking. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. That's his plan for you and I even today. The abundance of that life is in him. With the Lord being our portion. He restores me. He saves me. He turns me back from danger and destruction. David had an example of that with Nathan. You remember God sent Nathan to him because David was on a crash course with Bathsheba and he turned him back and David thanked God for that even though his heart was broken in his sin. Again, you could go to Psalm 51 and see the expression of that. He guides me, he leads me in right paths, in paths of righteousness. Do you get the implication, the sense of that? That as God is acting as our shepherd, he's leading us in the direction and in doing things that are righteous before him. This is important for us. It's, it's being guided by his word, and I would say our conscience as it is instructed and taught by his word. The course that he leads us in is never going to contradict his law, for instance. You go back to the Ten Commandments, and if you want to understand the Ten Commandments, go first to the Sermon on the Mount, a very good uh, pastoral sermon there. Second, go to the larger catechism. And look at the implications of those commandments in that larger catechism. It's excellent. It's overwhelming. There's so many references as to what each of those ca- commandments address in our lives, both negatively and, uh, and uh, positively. He describes this provision also in path, uh, a path and that path is like a wagon track. It is something that is firm. It may be indented, but the what we learn there is that what he guides us in is easy to follow as we look to him, as we listen to him. If you're not listening to him, you will not find it easy to do God's will. That should make sense. If you're not doing the will he's shown you, it is unlikely Either that he will show you what to do next or that you will be in any position or mood to listen to where he wants you next. And all of this is for his namesake. Now that's an interesting one. This is supposed to be about the sheep and how God provides for the sheep. But this is important for us. You see, As you go out into the society around you, for some of you, even going out into your families, and they know you've been to church today, they know that you've been worshiping God, supposedly, and they look at your life. His guiding us is so that as they see it, as I made the point this morning, that they might know that he sent his son, that they might see that God provides for us even in our extremities, even when things are most difficult, he provides for us that peace and what we need. So it's his reputation. That's why I, I don't have any stickers on my car that say, like, honk if you love Jesus, or any of these stickers that point out that I'm a Christian. Because sometimes I act like a jerk on the road. And I don't want people blaming God for my sin. Now, you might say, well, clean up your act. Slow down a little bit where you should. Or whatever. We reveal the wonder and the majesty of what God does. So let me sum up this implication, this fourth one, with this. Don't call the Lord your shepherd if you're not willing to go where he leads with contentment, with thankfulness. You understand? Don't bring shame upon his name if you're just going to wear his name so you can have privilege or respect, but you're not willing to live and to be what he is calling you to be. The fifth point we see in verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. What we see, the implication of this, is that He is still our shepherd, and in some ways, we might even sense it more when things are bad for us. We trust and submit to him. D.A. Carson, uh, in his comments, uh, in a devotional he does for the love of God, and this is on uh, chapter 39 of Genesis, uh, when it talks about uh, Joseph's troubles, He says that the chapter demonstrates that sometimes God chooses to bless us and make us a people of integrity in the midst of horrible circumstances. A bad boss, a bad relationship, a hostile culture, He chooses to make us people of integrity. In other words, people that live according to what we believe by conviction in reliance upon him rather than change your circumstances. And I just thought of a perfect application. My first church, a Yankee in the Deep South. I have to be careful. Someone from that church might... might end up listening to this. But my first two years in North Alabama, I knew that's not where God wanted me. I was an outsider. So we started praying and asking God, please move us. And you know what he did after nine more years? Because he wanted me to become a pastor, a man of compassion and integrity loving his sheep even if they were all over the place. I just thought of that. And God will do that in our lives. Joseph couldn't know how the events were going to go in his life, how things would work out, especially as he went through the misery and the injustices that he suffered. What he knew were the stories that were passed down about Abraham and maybe his own dreams that he had in his youth. But what Joseph does is he walks by faith and not by sight. And in that, God is glorified in us. A sixth thing, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You understand the use of the rod and the staff. The rod was for correction I believe if I got them right and the staff had the crook on it and that would be to pull back and to, well, I'd say the rod was for correction and perhaps defense, but the staff would pull back and protect. There's contentment even in God's chastening of us. We're wrong. Our hearts convict us. We know it we repent, we may be bitterly grieved because of our failing, our sin. But his active correction and guiding of us is still better than not hearing anything from God and being left to go astray in the direction in which we are going. And as we trust him and surrender even to his correcting, And even when we may not understand, and I've been there, where things just get all turned around. And I wonder what God is doing. And not able to see it until maybe two, three, four, ten years later. That's okay, because what God calls us to is to trust him through this, because he's shaping us to be useful and I, and I can probably say that all of those rocky experiences that I didn't deserve, of course, in my youth as a minister, in my naivety, in my brashness, in the mistakes that I made, God used all of those things. He worked all of those things together so that perhaps I could be more useful to him even now. In fact, I think it'd be valuable for you to look at your lives and the things that you are, have gone through, that you are going through, realize that they may be for the purpose of bringing you to a greater usefulness sometime down the road. I'm here this night because of the things that God did in my life as a new Christian, as a young minister, the mistakes, the trials, but they were all used to shape me. And all of those things in your life, no matter how old you are, you've got to see them as being used of God to make you useful to him now. His rod and his staff, they're a comfort because they're a sign that God's hand has not let you go. And then he he says in, Verses five and six. And what he does is he repeats. And this is my sixth point in verse five. He repeats what he said in a little bit different simile. God now becomes the host and he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You need to see this is the Lord's table that he has set before you, your life. And there's nothing that your enemies can do to hinder you feasting in God's provision. That's what's implied here. Thou has anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. He, the psalmist, has a sense of God's overflowing provision, even though the world seems to be against him. And as you go through this life, as someone has said, at that table, save the spoon. The best is yet to come. Uh, We come into his presence, listening to him and hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. A final implication I see here flows from this. It's a conclusion. If you look at all that David has said, if you sum these things up, then it is Obvious to say, surely, goodness and mercy, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Do You hear what he said there? He said that because of what God has done thus far, because God has been faithful, God has been my shepherd, everything that I can expect from this point on is going to be filled with that same goodness and mercy that he's shown me in the past. And it just affirms the confidence that we have that we will dwell in his house. He will not let us go. Nobody can snatch us out of his hand. You see, as we get a sense of this, a sense of who God is and what he has Sworn himself to do for us. And the benefit we receive, it yields in us a content expectation, a confident expectation for the future because we are his and he will not let us go. When I was in uh, Desert Storm, we were in Kuwait. It was after the battle. And we were sort of moving through an area. And at one point where we had stopped, I saw this large herd of sheep sort of come through the perimeter of where we were. They didn't mingle amongst the, the vehicles, but they were just on the fringe of them. And there was a dog or two. But not far behind them came an Arab shepherd. And he had a lamb wrapped around his neck. And he would whistle, but he was following where the sheep were going, where the dogs were leading them. And at that time in the spring uh, in Kuwait, in Saudi Arabia, you actually can see grass in the desert. But it's not like a putting green, believe me. It looks green as you look off in the distance for maybe a mile. And you see this green hue as you've got a strand of grass here and a strand here and one over here. But that's what they were feeding on, and that was their provision. But seeing that shepherd just galvanized me. It, 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 it brought me back to thinking about how God is not leaving me alone, and sometimes he even carries me. He carries you because you're just too dumb or too lame to follow, so he brings us along. What is the expectation of the one who lives in submission to God? This psalm is an expression of gratitude, of thanksgiving for our covenant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our good shepherd. Why can you claim, verse 6 here, this confidence? You see, you can claim that goodness, that God's goodness and his mercy, his loving kindness will follow you because your practice is to abide in him, is to listen to him. You abide in his protection, his leading, even when it restricts what we want to do. And what we then know is that not only will he provide, but his mercy will overtake us and bring us through. Let me read these verses once again that we take home with this. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Let's pray. Dear father. Forgive me if I have oversimplified things. Forgive me if I've perhaps implied things that aren't true, but I don't think so. But let us take to heart this expression of gratitude, this expression of confidence, this expression of submission to your will in our lives, even if it seems like We're suffering great injustice and the world is upside down and against us. Let us hang on to this because you do not let us go. And let us, Lord, make this claim that you are our shepherd and our lives are the evidence of it. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's name.